This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Hello, this is Omid Safi of the Sufi Heart podcast at Be Here Now. This week we have a special treat for you. I had a wonderful occasion to have a conversation with Kate Green Tripp, who works as an editor at 1440 Multiversity. And I'm scheduled to be um, taking part in a retreat coming up in the fall with uh, Sharon Salzberg, my very dear friend, at 1440. Uh, the dates are September 20th to September 22nd of this year. And the retreat is going to be called Path of the Courageous Heart. Path of the Courageous Heart. Um, and it will be Sharon and me taking um, part in it and leading friends along a conversation. So uh, to get to know each other a little bit better, I had a wonderful uh, opportunity to have this dialogue with the friends at 1440. I'd previously been there for the On Being retreat back in 2018. And it was a delicious, um, uh, wonderful conversation that ranged from poetry to love to issues of social justice uh, to the deep intersection and connection uh, between and among these issues. Uh, I'm especially delighted that at 1440 we'll have a chance to look at the connection of two traditions that we very rarely uh, see in dialogue with one another. And the Sufi tradition, which is really the heart of the Islamic path, and the teachings of Buddhism. Uh, somehow we tend to relegate Buddhism to more of an Eastern philosophy and Islam ends up being put in the Abrahamic family of religions. And we forget about the fact that uh, the mystics and the seekers of these parts of the world have not only lived side by side in Iran and Central Asia and India and elsewhere, but that they have also borrowed stories and allegories and teachings from one another, and even practices. So may it be that this initial conversation with um, Kate at, um, at 1440 is an appetizer of, uh, of the joy of the conversation to come. I hope you enjoy it very much and that some of you will be able to join us there. Um, thank you and enjoy. So um, I want to start off talking about, you know, obviously I see you are a scholar of prophetic and liberationist traditions. A nerd, please. We prefer to be called <laughs> nerds. Uh, we lost too many years of our middle school and high school without any friends to let go of that term so quickly. Now it's cool to be a nerd. Yeah, a geek <laughs> and a nerd at your service. It's so cool to be a nerd. Um, 
So, so who are the prophets who guide your daily life? That's a beautiful question. Um, so, you know, some of them are um, the names that are probably familiar to a lot of friends. Um, certainly as a Muslim, for me, the Prophet Muhammad, um, uh, the Jesus that I come across in the prophetic tradition, uh, very much as a marginalized and persecuted, uh, vulnerable, uh, first century Palestinian socialist Jew. Um, uh, Amos, uh, I mean, these are the kinds of figures that are very dear to, to my heart. And then, you know, there's also guiding lights through the centuries. Mm. Um, not just Rumi as a standoff, but the whole tradition of love that produced the Rumi. Mm. Um, and the closer we get to the 20th and 21st century, um, truth-telling, um, folk-loving people. Um, and for me, it's actually one of the most important communities of that is uh, the prophetic black church. Mm. Um, and so it's the, it's the legacy of Martin King and Vincent Harding and Desmond Tutu and Reverend Barber and Cornell West. Um, and, and also uh, Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde and, you know, those, those folks. And I don't think it's any accident that it's oftentimes the people who find themselves the most vulnerable who actually get to hold the brightest light uh, in terms of where we are as a human community and where we should be heading to. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I used to worry a little bit about what does it mean to be uh, a Muslim who is uh, so inspired by, you know, these prophetic Christian writings and for that matter, the prophetic writings of people like Rabbi Heschel, mm. um, who also has got a, you know, deep love for our Buddhist sisters and brothers. Um, and now I think I'm just at the point of life's too short. Um, and none of us are pure uh, in that sense of, um, you know, if you do your ancestry.com, it will never come back 100% one thing. Right. And that's just at the level of flesh and blood and genes. And, and when, it when it comes to something like beauty and love and inspiration, uh, none of us are 100% this or 100% that. I think what you want is you want to be grounded somewhere. You mm. want to be rooted somewhere. You want to make sure that you're um, sustained by something. You're fed by something. But um, uh, water is water. And whether it's springing up from under your feet or it's coming to you from a stream or whether it's raining at you from above, water is water. And whether that water is coming to you from the channel of Islam or the channel of the prophetic Christian tradition, the prophetic Jewish tradition or Buddhism, um, I think water is water. I want to know what you're doing with that water, not so much what channel it got to you. So, so what do you see in this moment? We can yeah. say this because moments are always changing and so yes. our sight is always changing. As your duty or service to the world as you work to kind of amplify these voices, these prophets, these lessons? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think um, the, the work that each of us are called to do in this life, um, it begins with ourselves and it begins at home. Um, you know, we can't offer a cup to somebody else if the cup of our own hearts is muddy. Mm. and dirty so um I, I think very much that that task of purification of one's own heart um is is very much the first step of trying to um be an agent and a channel of goodness in in this world um you know that's why i really see the inner work um not only as being connected to the outer work, 
but very much as part of the same process. Um, and we also live in an age of scandal and bluster and outrage. Mm. Um, and, and some of that is quite natural. I think if, if you have eyes that are open and ears that are open and a heart that is open, how could you not be outraged mm-hmm. at what is happening? How could you not be outraged that, you know, babies in cages and, and a fake national emergency and, you know, the only small little planet in all the infinite galaxies that we have that we've managed to find life on, and we might just be in the process of destroying it in a way that our great-great-grandchildren could no longer have a recognizable life on. So we should be outraged by that. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is outrage in and by itself redemptive? Mm -hmm. Um, is, Is outrage in and by itself transformative? Surely it changes you. But does it give you the the tools to build something more beautiful? Um, so I think a lot of the work that uh, I find myself doing is, um, you know, drawing from multiple traditions. Yes, um, but my roots, as we say here in the South, uh, uh, my roots are in the heart of the Islamic tradition. Um, and, you know, literally as I'm sitting in my home, I'm looking across at my library of, you know, a few thousand books of the medieval mystical tradition where Rumi is one pinnacle, but there's a whole mountain range behind them. And um, I, I sometimes use the analogy of you don't get Mount Everest without having a whole Himalayas behind it. Right. Right? And it's the mountain range that's actually pushing Everest and propping it and holding it in place. And, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that this mountain range is one that it is the center and the anchor and the heart of the Islamic tradition, but it's also one that you don't hear so much about these days. And so I think in terms of one of those other responsibilities in this prophetic tradition that I have is to to tap into that mm. and to excavate that. And then to also ask the question, what of this tradition still speaks to us today? Mm-hmm. And what if it's not all of it? And what if it needs translation, not only from Arabic and Persian and Turkish into English, but out of a medieval tribal context into whatever this new world is that is in the process of unfolding. I, I love that. I want to say two things because yeah. I have a series of questions for you kind of around Islamic mysticism, Rumi in particular, mm-hmm. I'll hold to those and, and dig in. But to your point about today, yep. the echoes and reverberations and lessons for today, yeah, I'd love to jump to that for a minute, sort of thinking sure. about what it even is to be prophetic and and who might today's prophets pushing us to pay attention to lessons we may not be ready for who might they be in your so uh you know i think again partially because um i'm a nerd and a teacher (laughs) and uh and i and i work in a in a university uh context um you know one of the things that i see is um, there's a whole prevalence of the call-out culture, mm. right? Um, and I actually think that a call-out culture is, is different than prophetic, than mm. being prophetic. Um, and so, you know, the easiest thing to do is for me to get on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and social, whatever, um, and be like, you people out there are doing this, Right. Um, and, and the minute that you have your finger pointing at somebody, I feel like that's only half the job mm-hmm. of being prophetic because what the prophets always did was that they stood in the middle of their own community. 
And it wasn't woe unto you. It was woe unto us. Mm. And there's a big difference between you shameful people who have forgotten about God and the poor and the orphan and the needy and the widow. It's another thing to stand in the very middle of your community and say, what has become of us? Right. Uh, and that's what I think the, the prophets are to be found. The prophets never stand up on a ladder talking down at their people. They, they go to where the wounded and the vulnerable inside our own communities are. You can't be a prophetic figure unless you love your own community. Uh, so, that makes sense. And, and exist within that community as you draw attention to the ill. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, you know, um, I think particularly for those of us who come from communities of color, mm. uh, one of the traps that I see are people who see themselves as being woke or spiritually and politically emancipated. They sometimes represent their own tradition and their own community as a prison. Mm. And these are, the, these are the token few who escape the prison. Mm. Right. And then they get to tell you, oh, let me tell you how terrible it was mm. to be that. And I made it out. I think that's the opposite of what it means to be prophetic. I think the prophetic figure is the one that has that luminous experience of God and chooses to come back and stand up in the middle of their own community and say, I love my people too much not to tell you the truth. And I want you and us to be better than what we are today. We were made to be in the image of God. And we've got to be holier than what we are being today. Um, I, I know you got other questions. One, one, one quick thing I'll tell you is I remember when I was reading Rabbi Heschel's book on the prophets. Mm. Uh, and it, it touched me. It moved me like to my core. And it doesn't surprise me that him and Dr. King got to be such dear friends. Mm. Um, one of the questions that Heschel says that the old prophets of Judea, what today we would call Palestine, um, were always asked was, well, you know, you keep talking about the poor and the orphan and the widow and the needy here in Judea. Have you seen Babylon? Mm. Have you seen how terrible things are over there? Right. What about the injustice in Saudi Arabia? What about the, the, the tyranny in Russia and in China? And Heschel says that the prophets always had the response, I am not the prophet to Babylon. I'm the prophet to Judea. Mm. I was sent to my people here. Don't distract me by talking to me about how terrible other people are doing. Mm. I want to know how righteous we as a people are supposed to be. And I think for us as Americans, especially, that's a really important point mm. because there's a whole lot of the spiritual, ethical, and political game of what some people call the what about, right? The what aboutery. Uh, what, what about the Russians? What about the Chinese? What about the Iranians? What about the Israelis? What about the Iraqis? What about the Saudis? Um, you know, you can't be the prophet to the whole world. You're the prophet to your people, to your community. And uh, I want to know where we are, where we're standing. What are we standing for? Mm. And from, and sort of kind of raise it to a more, well, I'm sort of thinking of a 30,000 foot view at the same time as I'm thinking of a very individualized view. As I think about this sort of precarious moment where we are, a time sort of extraordinarily rife with, yeah. with division and uncertainty, I think that can really easily translate, and we see it translating at the individual level to just a sense of unease and kind of despair. Um, I mean, and we certainly see this in the mindfulness university. Yeah. I think probably that contributes to why people are more are seeking. Absolutely. So how do we answer that sense? You know, um, I actually start um, in the same way that Rumi does. So when Rumi starts his masterpiece, he doesn't start by telling you, let me tell you how great it's going to be. <laughs> he doesn't tell you, if you come with me on this journey, 
you're going to see the face of God and you will become fully realized human being. He starts out by telling you, um, we all feel alone. Mm. Uh, we all despair. Mm. Uh, we've, we all feel broken. We all feel cut off from God and home and whatever it means to be realized. So you start with people where they are. Right. And so I think that sense of despair, I would actually sit with that. Mm. And I would say, so many of us, um, if we stop talking long enough, we have this nagging voice inside us that tells us how things are right now is not how they should be. Mm. That there's enough food for all of us. There's enough shelter for all of us. There's enough dignity and love for all of us. And the despair, I actually think, is deeply connected to a much more luminous internal sense that mm. there is a better way. Ah. There is a higher path. There is a more generous and kind mm. and righteous way for, for us to be together. And I think in the prophetic tradition, that's what they always talk about, hope. Hope not as um, a cheap kind of optimism. Right right? Hope not as, I think it's going to be okay tomorrow, right? right? right. Um, it's not about how I choose to see the world. Um, Reverend Barber, who, you know, for me is um, uh, probably the closest thing to Dr. King that I've seen in terms of um, the power of his prophetic preaching. Um, and I study this stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's a, um, he, one of his favorite lines of the Bible, which I had read before, but I didn't know it until I heard him speak it, um, is the one from the book of Zechariah of, um, go back to your fortresses, O you prisoners of hope. Mm. Um, that there is, hope is a prophetic quality. You can be in a prison and still hang on to that hope, that faith of, the stairway that you can only see the first step. So you're saying the despair comes from almost an instinctive inherent to our consciousness awareness that it does not have to be this way, or it's, it, it, it could be a different way. And we there, is a, there is a different way. There, right. there is a different way. Or there are many different ways. Right. And I think, and I would just start with the fact that we might not know what that way looks like and we might disagree on what that way should look like mm. but people know that there is a different there way, is a different way right and and you know it's like you see children in cages and in your heart you know you just you don't need to read a dissertation on it children belong in their parents arms right. children do not belong in cages right. you don't need a theologian to tell you that right. and you don't need a politician to tell right. you that and and i want to go back to that idea of um, where does that come from? Right. right. Where do we know that you see somebody um, who is just suffering and hungry on the street and, and, you know, you don't say, well, you know, we should redo our food distribution system in this country. Like, no, no, no. You want to go and directly right. provide um, the, the alleviation of, of suffering for that person. And I think that that's holy and that's sacred and that's beautiful uh, and that gives us hope that that kind of an awareness is actually hardwired into us. We're built for this. We're built for this kindness. We're built for compassion. We're built for love. So it's like, re, yeah, it's just igniting our basic humanity, essentially. Yes, yes. So, so how, so in, but our, in, as you were saying, in our most difficult global conversations, our most difficult national conversations, um, condemnation is a loud voice, fear is a loud voice, anger is a loud voice. How do we turn up the volume on love and compassion? So I think um, to just to begin with realizing that um, we're not going to out shout our way to sanity. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful quote. Uh, Right, um, that the people who are now in power, um, that they are the masters of chaos, mm. 
they are the masters of um, boisterous, divisive language. Mm. And we're not going to win by playing that game. Right? Um, the, and, and here's where I think, again, our spiritual traditions have something to offer us. Um, I was translating a beautiful mystical text from the 1200s. And it has one line, and I laughed so hard that I had to actually put the book down and just catch my belly from laughing. And he said, the hollower the drum, the louder it is. Mm. The perfume seller doesn't need to shout to tell you how lovely his fragrances are. Wow. Right? Um, I don't think we're going to win by standing out and being like in ever louder voices, love, mindfulness, <laughs> charity. You know? I don't think, uh, I mean, surely we do need to have ways in which we are um, reaching out to each other on social media and other kinds of formats. Mm. Um, but a perfume seller knows that as long as people have a whiff of um, that scent, uh, that that speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, um, and maybe not quite in the same ways that it was in the 60s, but in the way that's right for our time now, there is a call to be countercultural and to say, how do we intentionally create moments and spaces and communities in which we can sit together where beauty and love and tenderness and compassion are, are made real again. Um, and that the tenderness that each of us kind of experience um, is connected to the tenderness of one another. And I think part of the way that um, for me, this task of mindfulness and, um, you know, sometimes I say, Mindfulness, yes, and heartfulness, mm. right? It's not just a matter of the mind. It's also a matter of the heart. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the way that the mindfulness and the heartfulness also lead us to uh, ethical and moral action uh, in the outer world is to realize that our humanity is not something that we possess inside. Uh, you know, me as Omid, my humanity, and, and you, Kate, your humanity, our humanity is actually wrapped up in each other. Mm. And so, I mean, this is where I think, again, someone like Rumi comes in really handy, um, where he says things like, I cannot be who I want to be until you become everything that you ought to be. Mm -hmm. And that we're in this together. And either we go up together or we go down together but we're in this together. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those are some of the ways in which to create these spaces that are quiet enough where that still small voice inside can actually be heard uh, through all the bluster. And then we come to connect it with one another. That's beautiful. I love, by the way, I've heard you do it a few times where you, where you prompt, I guess in the cases I've heard it, you're speaking. So you're prompting the audience or the people listening to, to pay attention and look closely at sort of the depth and width of their own love, their circle of compassion, where you kind of go through the different, I'm imagining them as like concentric circles yeah. in the world. I love that. I think that's a beautiful self uh, exercise of self-reflection, how we see love. That's right. And I think um, one of the th points that um, I'm learning about that teaching, um, you know, 50 is right around the corner for me. And I think if I had um, read that same teaching 20 years ago, mm. um, my impulse, my little radical uh, cute, chubby self-impulse, um, I was really interested in how to carry that impulse outward. Mm. Um, and how do I make sure that 
uh, every sentient being and certainly every human being is enfolded within that love. Mm. Um, I think a few decades into this and, um, and, and quite a few uh, humbling <laughs> experiences in my own life's journey um, also remind me that um, we cannot be healers in the world until and unless we also come to term with our own, <laughs> with our own brokenness. Um, and we can't, um, we don't want to get stuck in our own self, but as long as we fundamentally hate who and what we are, uh, as long as we hate the shape of our body, as long as we hate um, the color of our skin, uh, it's very difficult to fully love any other person, much less another community. Um, yeah. Or compassionately understand our challenges. That's compassionately right. Compassionately sort of recognize our insecurities and see yeah, how right. they rear their heads yeah. then we have no patience for that's right they show up in other people that's right so i think i now i used to see it really as much more a unidirectional moving out mm. and i think i now see it as this ocean where the same wave that goes out keeps coming back and goes out again um and and to watch that ebb and flow um, and to watch the way that some of the things that we most despise in others are those as of yet unilluminated areas oh, in, our, in our own self. Yeah. Well, and you just nailed that link between the social justice world and the mindfulness world. That's the link, I think. I mean, tiny little, I, work, I lived and worked in Louisiana in the civil rights oh. world enmeshed with, you know, death penalty defense attorneys and the Southern Poverty Law Center and spending time in prisons. And anyway, some of the most incredible advocates I've ever, ever experienced. I mean, there's sort of nothing harder than death penalty defense work. Um, and so embittered, so embittered. And so there's this irony of activism. And yet if you're not internally turning the, you, you're suffering. You're actually increasing your suffering. And then one might argue, well, where's your impact? Right, right. And, you know, I think, again, um, every, um, you know, there's this wonderful line that um, uh, Leonard Cohen and Rumi, I think both independently sort of kind of get to, uh, uh, Lenny Cohen puts it as, you know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Right. Uh, and, 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 and Rumi says, uh, the wound is where the light enters you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we're now entering um, the third year of this particularly um, painful period of American history. Presidency, yes. Right. Um, and, and it's not just about one person. It's really about uh, the moment in which we sort of find ourselves in. Um, and not in spite of that, but actually precisely because of that, it's, um, it's been um, forcing me and giving me the opportunity to uh, think a little differently about these issues of how do we replenish ourselves. Mm. Um, and one of the realizations that I've um, come to, and maybe this has always been obvious to other people, Mm. But um, for, um, you know, this bear of very little brain, uh, it, it, it took some time to get to it. It seems to me like before um, this current cycle um, that we would observe the external world and many of us experienced it as every now and then there would be a major crisis mm. that would come up mm. and that, you know, you dealt with the crisis uh, and then you would have some time to replenish yourself and to rejuvenate and to recharge. And then the next crisis would come up. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think that um, where we find ourselves in now um, is, if you would excuse the Southern uh, bit of language, the whole damn thing uh, oh. is a crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think what that means 
in terms of teachings of mindfulness and heartfulness is that we no longer have that luxury right. of um, going away on a retreat, even if it's as wonderful as 1440, and recharging right. and then coming back. I think we've got to figure out how do we continue to incorporate teachings into our daily life so that as we are working and resisting and struggling and imagining, imagining um, more beautiful alternatives, mm. at the very same time, we're also replenishing ourselves. Mm. So the replenishing has to be a daily task as opposed to an episodic task. Uh, it's got to become practice. It's got to become a daily, almost hourly practice right. for us of whatever tradition we call home. Right, right. Yeah. So let's switch gears and talk about Rumi. Let's talk about it. I Rumi. would love for you to give us the, to, to frame this piece a little bit. I mean, I know everybody knows Rumi's name. Everybody may yeah. know the lines of Rumi. But I want, I would love, if you're willing, to just give a little like, Okay, who was Rumi, who he wrote for? Um, and, and that, let's talk about Rumi and in his time and then yeah. why he is, am I hearing best-selling poet in America right now? That's what, that's what the folks who count these things keep telling yeah, us. So yeah, so who he now is in our time. Right, right. So, um, I mean, Rumi was a Persian-speaking poet. Um, he was a scholar. Uh, born into a um, very distinguished Muslim family uh, from what today we would consider parts of Iran and Afghanistan. And they journeyed and they ended up in what's today Turkey. So he was an immigrant. He was a refugee. Um, and he writes a lot about experiences of exile and, and homesickness in that sense. Um, and, and for him, you know, there's multiple homes and one of the homes is where we've all come from, uh, that sacred ground. Mm -hmm. It's the home that's also our destination. Mm -hmm. um, and so for him, we come from love, we're going back to love, and the path that we have to take to go back home is the path of love. Um, and, uh, you know, he was unapologetically uh, a Muslim uh, figure who came through this tradition of love, radical love, I, I tend to call it. Um, but, you know, it wasn't those of us who live in California and New York who invented cosmopolitanism. Uh, you know, where Rumi spends his life is a city in uh, what's today Turkey, and his audience was Persians and Turks and Greeks and Arabs and Armenians and Jews and Kurds. Oh, my. Uh, I mean, walking down the street, he would have heard six different languages being spoken. Mm. And that's the community of people who are coming in to sit in on his storytellings and his poetry sessions. Um, so I think one of the ways and one of the reasons that Rumi resonates with so many people and so many different people is um, that he's somebody who's so deeply anchored in his own tradition, mm. the Islamic tradition, and he's also so accustomed to speaking in this most open way, where people of every different religious tradition and culture and language background could hear something relevant to themselves. Mm. Um, so I think that's at least part of why he uh, has become this best-selling poet in America, and the fact that we're thirsty. Uh, we are so deeply, deeply thirsty for these teachings of love and kindness and compassion. So the you're saying the tradition of radical love. Can you, can, can you open that up a little bit more for me? Yeah. So, um, you know, this is a tradition that um, the mystics of Islam say goes back to the very experience of the Prophet Muhammad, um, where he is said to have ascended and seen God face to face. Um, and that's, that's what we all want. We want to see the face of God. When we pray, um, you don't want to just be lining up in a certain direction and mouthing certain prayers in whatever language. I want to see the face of God. And, and all of us will see the face of God in the hereafter. We just want to see the face of God now. Mm. 
uh, and there's that sense of not settling for secondhand religion, mm. uh, having that unmediated, direct encounter. Um, and before Rumi's time, there was a deep tradition of love in Islam, but people tended to divide it in two. They used to say, well, there's the love for God, which is the real love. And then there's love for humanity, which is like secondhand love. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if we, if we learn to love each other, it's so that we can learn the alphabet with which we can compose sonnets mm -hmm. for the one that is intended for God. Mm -hmm. So like we're practicing on each other. We're practicing. We're practicing on each other the way that children might practice with dolls before they can be a real okay. mom and a real dad, right? But Rumi comes out of this slightly later tradition that I call radical love. And they basically have one big, bold innovation. Um, so I call them the Bob Marleys of Islam. This is the one love tradition. Uh, and this is actually explicitly how they put it. They say there is one love. There is no divine love and human love. There's one love. Mm. That if you wish to love God, you have to learn to love humanity. And if you can learn to love humanity without all of the ego attachments, uh, and that if I say I love you, can I then do that to you, mm. right? So often it seems like the word love is so hollow mm. for us that um, it's almost become transactional. I agree. Right? And, and for Rumi's kind of tradition, um, you know, love is a sacrament. Um, love is, it's not even a divine quality. It's actually the, um, the, as I like to call it, it's the unleashing of God onto this realm. Uh, it is this radical love that brings you here. It's this radical love that sustains you here. And if you merge with it, it's going to carry you back home. So in that radical, in that tradition, how does love inform justice? So uh, this is a tradition that um, the mystics of Islam have. And interestingly enough, my mentors in the civil rights movement use the very same language. They say, think, because we're talking about love as this river, as this ocean, as this current that's flowing, don't think of love as something static. Uh, don't think of love as an emotion that you feel, right? Today I feel like loving you and tomorrow I may not feel like loving you. Think of love as this cosmic current that is flowing through you. When love flows through you and it flows outward, we call it justice, mm. right? So what we mean by justice is each one of us can close our eyes. We can think of, if we're blessed with children, we think about the children that we have. If you don't have a baby, you're always somebody's baby. Mm. Um, and we can all think of what we would want for our babies or what our mamas would want for us. You want food in your bellies, a roof over your head, dignity in your bones. Mm -hmm. right? Justice, in that sense, means loving for other people's babies, the same thing that you would want for your own babies. Mm -hmm. uh, we would never do to other people's babies what we wouldn't want somebody to do to our babies. Mm. So really, you know, this whole task of, um, of social justice, um, you know, this is, this is not some Marxist innovation. It's not socialism. It's a work of love. Mm. It's a work of love of how do we treat each other's babies. Mm. But what I love about, about the way that these, um, these luminous uh, teachers talk about love is that it's an ocean. It has ebbs and flows, and it flows outward as justice, but it also flows inward. And they say when that same love moves inward, we call it tenderness. Mm. So... And, and again, this is one of the parts that 30 years into a world of activism and, and watching many of my activist friends and watching many of their families mm. 
and their personal relationships mm -hmm. fall apart mm -hmm. is one of the things that they talk about is that in confronting injustice and tyranny and oppression, we must be bold and fierce and protective of those who are vulnerable. In terms of our dealings, face-to-face, human-to-human, heart-to-heart, beginning with those in our immediate circle, we have to be tender with one another. That actually being radical in a commitment of justice is connected through love to being tender in our friendships and our family and our community dealings. And so one of the things, one of the places that I saw this was, you know, when I was reading about the way that people in the inner circle of Malcolm X mm. used to describe him. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't get more woke than Malcolm, you know? You can't out-woke Malcolm. Uh, <laughs> like, you can watch any video of him talking about police brutality, mm. and, and, and it, it works today. It's, mm. It resonates with people today. Um, there is this stern and strong and determined and principled opposition. And then people say, did you ever see him smile? Because the minute that he would see you, he would flash this tender smile that you would just melt in, right? And thinking about this love as having this outward and this inward flow, where we can be principled and determined, even fierce in one moment, and then, but in the way that we treat each other, being quite tender and vulnerable. And I think the reason that that hits me very close to home is having spent quite a bit of time in activism circles. Hmm. Um, I've grown up with way too many people, usually men, but not always, who feel like the rightness and the righteousness of their political stances and their activism commitment allows them to step on and over people in their inner circle. And this path of love says, no, it is not that way. Right. It is not that way. We have to learn to be tender with each other as we are committed to justice. And all of that is a work of love. It comes from total caring. And then you feel it so deeply. Um, so I'm, I'm here. Absolutely. I think you're, you're exactly right. And you know, I mean, um, people love to create these false binaries between um, Malcolm and Martin. And you know, every now and then I feel like um, people who've never done anything to alleviate the suffering of others, they should get the name of Martin out of their mouth. Like they, they should not be allowed to use the voice and the name of Dr. King to criticize the people who are working every day. Mm. Um, and, but one of the things that Martin used to say was when people were criticizing the folks who are rioting, mm. was he used to say, riot is the language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. uh, which means that, you know, before you ever go on uh, telling somebody, uh, well, you know, we hear a lot of anger in your voice and we hear a lot of outrage in your voice. And Dr. King surely wouldn't have done that. I mean, first of all, I'm not sure how well they actually know Dr. King. Um, second of all, I'm not sure that they would be standing with Dr. King today. And third of all, if you're going to use Dr. King, then you need to make sure that those who are writing and those who are giving voice to outrage are heard. Mm. Uh, you can't not listen and not hear the ones who are in agony and then blame them and be like, why are you screaming so loud? You shout as if you are in pain, <laughs> you know? Right. So, right. Um, so I think we've got a lot of growing to do together. Um, and, and I think as, um, as somebody who's part of those same circles and an ally and a supporter, but especially as a man mm. 
um, it is not my place to be telling my sisters, um, well, you know, your outrage is a little bit too loud. Like that. No, I think uh, those days of um, men telling women how they should be acting, how they should be dressing, how they, long gone, long, long, long gone. Uh, no, for good. Not entirely. <laughs> well, there, there's people who would like to still hang on to them, but I think those are outdated mentalities. And, um, you know, I think um, um, all I can do is just to um, hold the people that I love in my heart um, and, and to march with them and behind them and next to them, um, never in front. Um, and uh, and then, you know, if um, ever asked um, to share some of my insights and observations and, um, and to, to maybe just, you know, pose the question of, um, yes, there is a place and there is a room for this outrage. Um, and, and how are we also um, replenishing our hearts? Yeah. I think you have a big role to play in teaching us that both are vital and the bringing the love and the artistry and the compassion and the stoking the fires of the beauty of what it is to be a human alongside stoking the fires of paying attention to being a citizen. Because, you know, it is so lovely. Yeah. It is so lovely to be a human. I it agree. is such a gift to take a breath in and every breath that we take expands your heart and expands your chest and and life continues like every breath is a joyful miracle um and you know and then to get to see the face of a friend even yeah. if through a screen you know um and to hear voice and a giggle of a child and rain falling and sunshine like it's, it's, it's an almost overwhelming sense of beauty that is all around. Um, and that, that's at the heart of things. That's at the core of things. I love what you're up to in the world. Keep going. <laughs> well, together. together. It, takes, it, really does take, uh, it really does take all of us. And, um, and I think, you know, yes, it's, look, you, you know this, and we started by talking about how challenging and how difficult um, the, the time and the age that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Part of why it's so difficult is that so many of the old models are crumbling. Yeah. And we don't quite know yet what's going to take their place. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a little, you know, when the ground under your feet is shifting, uh, it scares the bejesus out of everybody. Uh, and the ones who have benefited from the old ways, they surely don't want to give up their, their privilege. And then, you know, those of us who want to have something which is maybe a little more fair and just and egalitarian and radical and beautiful, um, we know that there has to be a better way. But to be honest, you know, a lot of us couldn't tell you all the details of what that's going to look like yet either. Um, but, but together, I think that's why we need... We need all of us together. I agree. It's fascinating because as you say that, you know, it's true. And I know we have to go, but I just, the ground is shifting, yes, in our, in our power dynamics, in our sort of political dynamics, in our, in our recognition of each other and how we, you know, in all the sort of external ways, ground is also shifting considerably in our own little tiny world ways, how we work, how we partner, how we build families, how all of it. Yes. So it's not just the sort of broader archetype right. sort of right. civil society. It's like daily life too. Yeah. Yeah. Marriage, family, yes. gender, race. Yes, I mean, exactly. like it, it's like, we're going to take all the balls and they're all up in the air. Um, and, you know, what a lovely opportunity. Yeah. What a lovely opportunity to say, um, all right, there are almost 8 billion of us living on this little tiny dot um, get to have a way of figuring out how to, how to share, how to live together. Um, and it may be that, um, that we, we make um, tenderness and love and beauty and heart 
and sharing and kind, all the things that we teach our children, right? May, may, may we make those things be the principles of, of this new world. Right. Okay, final question, which is completely off topic. Every year, do you do Morocco and Turkey? Every year, Morocco and Turkey, we are, uh, yeah, it's a program called Illuminated Tours. It's I looked, open to everybody. Does Turkey, Turkey is, uh, as soon as I saw that, I was like zeroed in on that because Turkey is of a long fascination. So how? First, this year, we'll be going um, in like the first 12 days of October. And then, but does it typically stay that time of year every year or do you shift? Um, we used to do it in May and sometimes June, um, um, but then when we started the Morocco program, I'm trying to stagger them a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then also trying to stay out of the hot summer months. Makes um, sense. Because it, we're outdoors. We don't sit in the classroom. We're going from sacred no. site to sacred site, and, um, and I you spent, know. It, it, I spent 15 years in Greece for a big chunk of every... You know, yes. Yeah, you know, right. No, right. you're wise. October's brilliant. October's great. May is lovely. Uh, in Morocco, we're there this year, end of April to beginning of May. That's also a very lovely time. And um, it's uh, by design, um, multi-faith. So we got people of every and no uh, faith background. Um, mm -hmm. um, we've got teenagers all the way up to eighty-something-year-olds with most folks, of course, being something in the middle. Um, and then by design, uh, and really by, um, by the grace of, uh, of the keeper of the stars, um, it's a female majority program uh, and mm -hmm. has been since the beginning. Um, and, and that just changes the vibe. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a different field when uh, men are not in charge. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I love that. And mm -hmm. I love the, um, the circle, the nature of the circle conversation. I love the fact that, um, yeah, we get to go and, you know, I might get to say some words on this sacred site and that place. And in the evenings, I'll, we have discussions on Rumi and the path of love and we do some readings and I'll get the conversation going and then we shift back into the circle. Mm -hmm. and, and people bring up um, their observations and mm -hmm. their experiences of, of the teachings. And I think that's, that makes it really special. So, okay. So, your, so October trip, is that up on your site or not? Um, it will go up very soon. Okay. Um, we just got the dates um, uh, set on. And it's a beautiful itinerary. We sort of move through uh, four or five cities in that 12-day span. And, um, you know, I'm very picky. Uh, being a, it's a place that I know um, somewhat well and have spent the last 30 years um, visiting many, many times, um, once or twice, sometimes four times a year. Um, so, you know, I know, I know which hotels I want us to stay in and I know which sites I want to see at what time of the day. Um, and so uh, we just got the itinerary finalized. And uh, so, yeah, so it will be something like October 1st to October 12th of okay. 2019 for Turkey, uh, April 26th to May 5th for Morocco. Um, people can still sign up for Morocco. We've got maybe a, couple, a few more spaces. Turkey, we haven't formally opened up registration, but we will very soon. Okay. I'm gonna keep and, you know, there's one spot, at least for friends named Kate. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I really will keep my eye on that. Please. Um, pleasure to meet you. Absolutely. I felt like I knew you before I met you, and now I feel that way even more. <laughs> you know, I think it's, um, there's a beauty to, um, I know it's an overused word, but authenticity. Hmm. And one of the really greatest compliments that I think I ever get from people is when they get to meet me, and they're like, you're kind of actually exactly who we thought you would be. And I was like, we should all be. Like, I agree. It's, it's so much work. Oh it's God. so much work to keep up all these layers and facades and things and I, um, keeping I'm, track of them. So I'm so with you. Why be any other way? It's, it's a relief and a joy Absolutely. to just let yourself be who you are. You. Well, it's a pleasure. So thank you. Süleyman
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.